lack of funds. And you are listening to 94.1 KPSA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPSB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpsa.org. It's 3 p.m. and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon. This is Nina Serrano for Open Book. And I have as my guest today a novelist, Carolina de Robertis. She wrote a book called The Invisible Mountain that Oprah herself has picked out as a 2009 terrific read. And I, who finished reading the book last night, can tell you it is a terrific read. Uh, it took three nights. I didn't decide, I decided not to stay up all night as I sometimes do and finish it in one or two because I needed, I needed the pauses to reflect on what was written and also because I often got carried away in the words of how it was written. This is a novel full of lush, lush poetic language. It follows three generations of women, and the mother-daughter relationship is the major focus. But running through it, I guess, uh, like the Invisible Mountain, is the history of Uruguay where it takes place. Because it begins at the beginning of the 1900s, the beginning of the very first day of the new millennium, and takes us all the way through, practically, to our own uh, end of the end of the 90s, the end of that whole epic, and what its effect on Uruguay was, and all the time, echoing in the background is the role of our very own United States. But most of the time, you're involved in the feelings, the twists and turns, very unexpected of this exciting book. And for me, uh, there was this momentous time. When the name of one of my friends was mentioned, I couldn't believe it. To find your friend with their own name in the novel was extraordinary. Then I thought to myself, well, oh, well, she did put Che Guevara as a character in her book, so maybe she is actually using my friend Ernesto Bravo as a character in her book. And does Ernesto know that he's in this book? This is just amazing. Well, now I have a chance to clear it up because in the studio, as I mentioned, is Carolina de Robertis. Welcome, Carolina. Thank you, Nina. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. A true joy. Well, please comment on Ernesto Bravo's appearance in your book as a character in a novel when he's a real live man. Well, that's an incredibly interesting coincidence. I didn't know about that, but um, there are historical figures that thread through the book because I really did want to bring to life um, the whole 20th century scope of Uruguayan history and culture. Um, I certainly invented people to bring that to life. The three main characters are, are invented, though inspired by... Uh, oral histories and family stories of prior generations of my lineage. Um, but Ernesto Bravo in particular... <coughs> Ernesto Bravo in particular is actually a real name from history. Another Ernesto Bravo, clearly not your friend, because he was a young man in 1940s um, Argentina. That is my friend. Is that right? Yes. Was he... Uh, is. 
What, and was he a resistor under uh, yes. Juan Perón in the yes. 1940s? Yes. That is, and was he arrested falsely yes. and framed? Yes. Well, that is just an absolutely incredible thing. He is the real person. I read about him in history books. I was fascinated by his case. And I asked myself how my main characters would react if they found out about this great injustice. Um, and specifically what Eva would do with her power of words. Well, what my friend did was she married him. Is that right? Yes. What my, my, my friend Estella Bravo, who's today a uh, world-famed prize-winning filmmaker, and her husband Ernesto, the very same fellow, um, make all these fabulous documentaries. But he, she went to the youth festival, the International World Youth Festival. I went in 57, and she went... A, two years earlier, which must have been 55, or maybe it was held every four years and she went in 53. But she went before me because she's a tiny bit older. And um, there, every, the Argentine delegation was talking about the student. They called him the student, mm -hmm. Ernesto Bravo, because he was such a figure on the left in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And she arranged to meet him, and then later she couldn't get him out. She went back to New York and she could never get him out of her mind. So she went to Argentina, made underground contact so that she could meet with him. And he came in some kind of disguise and she met him. And then one thing led to another. And today they're married. Uh, they have three grown children and uh, they live in Cuba. And uh and and they're they've been happily married all these years. Well, this is an incredible story. I'm actually indebted to Estela Bravo. I know her and I've exchanged emails with her because I have used her documentary film for my research for my second novel, which is about the children of the disappeared in Argentina. Um, so we've been in touch around uh, well, around that is that her topic. husband Ernesto. Isn't who, that incredible? Who has been a professor in Havana at the medical school? He's now retired. I didn't know. I didn't know what had happened to this young man known as Ernesto Bravo that I read about in history books. Although um, I did very closely base that part of the book on historical fact, um, the specifics of how he was brutalized by the police and the fact that it was a physician who was forced to take care of him who ended up um, blowing the story in a mimeograph that was circulated among people of power and caused a scandal in Buenos Aires. Um, and that doctor had to go into exile. All of that is true. I inserted my character, Eva, to uh, interact with this doctor. Now we're at the heart of the novel, the characters. Eva is the middle character. It all begins with Pajerita. Tell us, read us, or tell us about this, The Invisible Mountain by Carolina de Robertis. Um, yes, this book is uh, multi-generational. It's three generations, and the first generation is Pajarita. She is born in the countryside in a small town called Tacuarembó in the north of Uruguay. And um, she is an herbalist, and she meets an Italian immigrant who is a, in a traveling carnival who falls in love with her. She's 17 and brings her to Montevideo, the growing capital, to start a new life. And that's a th 
theme in the book, Montevideo, which you break the word up. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the, the the name was given to it by the first Spanish explorers who come and say, mountain, I see you. But the joke that runs all the way through is that it's really no mountain. It's like a little hill. Sometimes they mm-hmm. ca- refer to it as a fried egg. That's right. It's <laughs> the shape of the hill. Right. Exactly. So it is this sort of invisible mountain that the city itself is named after. Maybe I could read from the part where Pajarita first comes to the city of Montevideo on her impressions. Please. Montevideo was unspun wool, full of rough billows, gray mazes, raw promise. Montevideo. I see a mountain, one of the first Europeans to sight this land had said. Pajarita had never seen a mountain, but even she could tell there were none here. This city had no slopes. No, that wasn't true. Its ground lay flat, but buildings pushed up everywhere, gathering their height into the sky. If only she could be a bird in more than name. She'd soar above the city, and then what would she see? A mesh of cobbled streets and walls, riddled with people, crushed up against the sea. No, not the sea. It was a river, that long, smooth water fringed with rocks. Argentina lay somewhere on the other side. Perhaps in her high glide she would glimpse it winking into view. Here in this city one could think of flying. Here it was easy to forget about the ground. Like, for example, in their new Ciudad Vieja apartment where everything seemed vertiginously high, the flights of stairs to the door, the brass bed frame that suspended their mattress over air, chairs twice as tall as bull skulls with upright wooden backs, the stove made for cooking standing up instead of squatting, and the window at which she perched to absorb Calle Sarandi with its stony breath, its men in clean black hats and women with their baskets, the clap of horseshoes and the subtly sighing trees, the sweet press of a far accordion, and the hawking voice of the grocer who had told her that the world was at war. So that's Pajarita and the world is at war. That takes us up to 1914, the First World War. Exactly. Would you like to read us some more from other places? Sure, I'd be delighted. Um, That's during the First World War and and her first impressions of the city. I'll read a little from um, a little bit later in Pajarita when her husband has left and she doesn't have any food to feed her children. She's got three children and she's run out of food. So her friend, Coco, who runs the neighborhood butcher shop, suggests that she come and sell her herbal remedies to women in the back of the butcher shop. So she um, decides to go and try this. Pajarita took her children and a basket of leaves and roots and barks to the butcher shop. The boys resumed an epic pretend game of gauchos in the campo, riding imaginary horses among the chunks of flesh that hung from the ceiling. In one corner of the room, between the chopping block and meat hooks, Pajarita arranged two small wooden stools and sat down on one. Ignacio, she thought, I want to kill you, to kiss you, to carve you like a flank. Just wait and see how I'm going to live without you by my side. Coco served as a living advertisement. Women began to come. Some of them just needed to be heard. 
They told sprawling, unkempt tales of death in the family, brutal mothers-in-law, financial pressures, wayward husbands, violent husbands, boring husbands, loneliness, crises of faith, visions of Mary, visions of Satan, sexual frigidity, sexual temptation, recurring dreams, fantasies involving saddles or bullwhips or hot coals. She offered them teas for comfort, luck, or protection. Other customers came with physical conditions, pain in their bones, a stitch in their side, numbness in hips, ears that rang, forgetfulness, sore knees, sore backs, sore hearts, sore feet, cut fingers, quivering fingers, wandering fingers, burns, headaches, indigestion, excessive female bleeding, a pregnancy that wouldn't come, a pregnancy that had to end, cracked bones, cracked skin, rashes no doctor could die diagnose, aches no doctor could cure. There were housewives, maids, sore-handed seamstresses, sweaty-handed adulteresses, great-grandmothers swaying with canes, young girls swooning with love. Bajarita listened to them all. Word spread. Women came to see her from all corners of the city. She could barely keep up with harvesting from cracks in the sidewalk, nearby parks and the pots in her own house. To Coco's delight, the seekers often picked up their daily beef along with their cures. Pajarita set no price. She developed a peculiar sort of fame. Her name was whispered through the kitchens and vegetable stands of Montevideo. Pajarita, she cured me. You should go see her too. And when I almost... You saw me then, if it hadn't been for her. Strange, she thought, that all of this should grow from something as familiar as plants, such ordinary things, opening new worlds, drawing the souls and stories of this city to her doorstep, unveiling a startling thing inside her, a reach, a scope, adventures with no road map forays into the inner realms of strangers where she roved the darkness in search of something that bucked and flashed and disappeared, slippery, evasive, untamable. One sweltering afternoon as a hunchbacked woman who smelled of garlic confessed her infatuation with the new priest, Baharita felt something stir inside her body. Her mind reached into feel. She was pregnant a girl this time. She filled with the memory of conception, that final night, the clawing, Ignacio's torn and hungry skin, and he was gone. She almost imploded from the sadness. You just heard Carolina de Robertis reading from her novel, The Invisible Mountain, the story of Uruguay from 1900 to almost 2,000, 100 years of Uruguayan history through the lives and the feelings and the twists and turns of fate on three generations of women. That part was about Pajarita, the first woman. Now, Pajarita, as I recall from my reading of the book, that's the only really magical element in the story, which... Uh, when people ask me about it, when I say, oh, I'm these last few days, oh, I'm reading this really fabulous book. And they say, well, what kind of a book is it? And 
You know, I would say, well, it's like magical realism, but it's less magic and more realism mm -hmm. because it's historically based. But the magic in it uh, isn't from the incidents in the plot, except for this one about uh, Pajarita, but more the language, mm. your own poetic language. That's very magical, very inspiring. But the Pajarita, can you tell listeners about Pajarita? And as a novelist, why did you decide to make this one person have a magical beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, Pajarita is, um, she gets her name, which means little bird, from having been born twice. Um, once as a baby, as we all are, and her mother dies in childbirth. Her father is so heartbroken that she, he refuses to name the baby and sort of ignores her and um, she is very uh, conscious as a, as a little baby, hyper-conscious of being unwanted and unloved in her home. So one night her father has a fight with her aunt and basically says, I don't care, kill her, you know, I don't, I don't want this baby here. And the next morning, little Pajarita, who is still nameless, it disappears. She's gone. And they look for her for months, and they can't find her. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so we begin with this nameless little girl baby who disappears in the rural countryside of Uruguay and everybody says that she must have died because no little girl can survive in the wilderness so of course this is something of a myth about um about the little girl who is said to be unable to survive alone, who isn't wanted, and yet mysteriously shows up again on the first day of 1900, so the first day of the new 20th century. She's sort of a harbinger of what is to come. And she appears on the top of the highest tree in the town, and nobody knows how she got there. Um, and she seems ambivalent about returning to the land of the living and it's the love of her aunt that brings her down from the tree um, and because she either falls from the tree or flies down some people say she flew some people say she fell um, she becomes known as Bajarita as little bird and this story just came to me it sort of rose up out of free writing I'm not really sure what the source of it is but I think that some of the themes in it that really fascinate me are um, women's and females' capacity for survival that far surpasses what we expect from from women and girls, and um, and and also uh, just the possibility. I'm sorry, I'm a bit stuck. <laughs> um, so, so I think I think that this story it's a mythologic it's a it's, a, it's sort of a mythos of um, of the beginning of this girl. And I think one of the ways it came up is that um, I was first inspired to write this book, wanting to get to know my my Uruguayan heritage, and also wanting to get to know the stories of my family. And I had noticed that in the oral stories of my family, I would always be many long, fascinating paragraphs about the men, my great grandparents, my grandfathers, um, and very little about the women. They seemed to appear out of thin air. And um, it made me feel like, wow, there's a lot of silence in the oral histories of the women in my lineage. But
but there must be so much treasure buried within that silence. And I sort of wanted to dig that out. And this this notion of the women um, appearing out of thin air and maybe having origins that were a lot more rich and mysterious, I think was really swimming with me and resulted in Bajarita. And in the second section that begins with Eva, can you read us something about Eva and tell us about that section? Sure, I'd, I'd be delighted. So Eva is Pajarita's daughter, and um, she's also a young woman who tries to find her way against all odds, though in a different way. She um, overcomes the violence in her early childhood to pursue her life as a poet. And so I'll read a little bit from Eva uh, when she's older and a married woman and um, writing poetry in Montevideo. After visiting her cousin Chana, Eva often stayed up through sunrise and wrote. Poems came for their own sake, copious, private, raw. Her secret stash filled three drawers, words caught in musty dark, each word a tiny prism that refracted some small beam of Eva's world. Hunger, dawn, a city on the shore. Two miraculous children who insisted, despite all maternal longing, on growing and running and becoming little people of their own. The funeral her daughter Salome gave a dead swallow in Parque Rodó. So sensitive her Salome, she wept as if she'd loved that bird for years. The joy of curling her body around Roberto's on a rainy night. She wrote about Montevideo's sleepy beauties and its daily return into her skin, about the way a small thing, El Rio de la Plata's curving motion, a woman weeping against a balcony rail, the red aroma of beef roasting a las brasas at the corner bar, could blow right through her so she shook in sudden winds that woke her to the world and her tenuous place within it. And she wrote and did not write about the haunted nights when demons seemed to push her through her dreams until she woke up, clammy, gulping air, alone in a haunted city beside a doctor deep in sleep. She did not write about the doctor, her husband, the stranger in her bed, the film of pleasantry that shielded them from each other. She didn't know any longer where these words were going, why she wrote them, what they meant. It was enough to let her pen rove the paper, chasing its edge, giving shape to the unshapeable, chasing home. You just heard Carolina de Robertes reading from The Invisible Mountain. Do you have more selections about Eva? Um, sure. I can read a part from Eva's time in Buenos Aires. So she leaves Montevideo and goes to Argentina to kind of try to find her way as a poet. And um, at first she's uh, living in poverty as a waitress, but she ends up marrying a wealthy doctor. And here she is at a party at the presidential palace um, under Juan Perón, and she sees Evita Perón for a moment, who is someone whom she's been admiring from afar. So here she is, um, seeing Evita. Eva stopped after her third step. Evita stood in full view, glistening like a diamond in a lush satin gown. 
She was laughing at something someone had just said, mouth a wide red arc, hair a golden crown. She looked gaunt, yes, the rumors of illness must be true, but ill or not, she shone. Here she was shining, jewel of the nation, saint, wife, mouthpiece of the people, glue binding the nation to Peron. The bridge of love, she was called, and surely the name was apt, surely crossings were made bearable by her presence. Now Evita stood alone against the backs of black tuxedos, surprisingly small, but while she stood, while her mouth arced, Eva could believe what she wanted to believe, that the promises were true, Peron and almost God. The poor could have glamour, houses, fine brocade. The government loved its people without end. Immigrant waitresses could keep their precious stones and publish books of poems. Don't die, Eva thought to her. Don't ever die. Evita turned her head and their eyes met, and for a moment Eva shouted her whole soul into her gaze. But Evita just nodded vacuously, smiling the same smile that graced portraits across the nation. And then her eyes scanned on, and it was over. And this is the soon after that she's going to meet my friend, uh, Ernesto Bravo. That's right. That's right. She's going to learn of him very soon. Yes, of of the historical figure Ernesto Bravo, who is a real friend of yours. Yes, yeah. and living to this day. And uh, recently, his wife sent me some photos of them enjoying his birthday party in Florida, swimming and boating and doing all kinds of marvelous things with their children and enjoying themselves to the max. I'm so delighted to learn that he's alive and well. You know, Ernesto Bravo's story really fascinated me as I was doing my copious, copious research um, on the historical times this book is set in um, because his case was one that really shone a light on the brutality of the Peronista government um, at a time in the 40s and early 50s um, when it was still being seen in a very positive light by a lot of populist people. Um, Peron's legacy is very complicated for that reason because they spoke in such a populist way. Um, Juan and Evita did do a lot of things that uh, gave resources to the poor and seemed to be um, very supportive of of populist thoughts and tendencies. Um, and so a lot of people on the left admired him. At the same time, he was also very fascist and um, and a terrible anti-Semite. Yeah, yes. Pro-Hitler. Very much in bed with Hitler and Mussolini. And so it was a very, it was a very comp. And he also said some things about nationalizing um, uh, business in a way that was anti-U.S., but that people saw as very brave for the time and very positive, very anti-imperialist. Um, and he was democratically elected. People sometimes call him a dictator here, and I find that very problematic because he was a democratically elected president. However, he also was engaging in censorship and um, brutality such as what was suffered by your friend Ernesto Bravo. So he's a very complex figure, and I really in attempted in this book to show some of the complexity of um, not only Peron's uh regime, but people's perception of it and their attempt to grapple with all of these things. And Ernesto Bravo's case was one really interesting place to do that. Well, I think you really succeeded in dealing with political and historical issues 
but you also succeeded in writing a beautiful story, three wonderful, exciting stories, the kind you can't put down page after page. Is there a website where people can check the book out or maybe order it? Oh, absolutely. My website is my name. It's www.carolinaderobertis.com. And um, so it's C-A-R-O-L-I-N-A-D-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-I-S. And the book is called The Invisible Mountain. Thank you so much, Carolina de Robertis, author of The Invisible Mountain. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for having me. KPFA didn't actually invent the model of listener-sponsored radio. Others had tried and failed, but KPFA was the first to actually make it work. That is, thanks to our generous listening community that understood the importance of a local independent media voice. In that great listener-sponsored tradition, February 14th, Valentine's Day, starts KPFA's next fun drive. And you can share the love today with KPFA by pledging just $100 or more. All funds collected before Valentine's Day will go to replenish KPFA's matching fund. Please go to kpfa.org right now and share the love. stand single page dead end street first and only never to be repeated passion here the sum is equal to the total singularity defeating multiplicity the single swallow outdistances the flock a single word brushes aside the entire poem here